they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome to the Bible with the Barbers. The tables are turned. My wife is sick this time. She's a little into the weather, but she'll be back next Friday. The topic today is going to be a good one. It's on uh, creation, how the world was formed. I'm taking this from Scott Hahn's Salvation History series. And I'm also hoping to get a little bit about a biblical view on marriage using the Bible and the catechism and a new book that came out from Ignatius called Couples Awake Your Love by Cardinal Cardinal Seurat, and he's a great cardinal, and uh, his insights, and he has a very good approach to helping couples through reading the Bible together and doing an examination of conscience together, so you're going to like that. But before I get to the topic about creation, I wanted to add something that we get lots of questions here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and one of the questions came up over the years is, why doesn't the uh, Catholic Church ordain women? And what's a biblical answer to that? What does the church say? So this is quite a bit of an answer, but it's very thorough. And, you know, there's a lot of people that over the years have asked that question. So here's the answer. The Catholic Church does not ordain women for three reasons. First, it is strictly prohibited in sacred scripture. Good reason. Check one. Second, it is strictly prohibited in the apostolic tradition. Check two. Third, it is a distortion of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to the scripture because this is the Bible with the barbers. Sacred scripture forbids the ordination of women to any clerical state. The clerical offices of the church are threefold. This is very important to know. It's right in the catechism too. We take it right from the Bible. Deacon, presbyter, priest, and bishop. In every case, along with many other qualifications, the scriptures state that a candidate must be a man. And if he's married, he can only be the husband of one wife. The Bible only recognizes two genders. Make a note of that, uh, the culture. The Bible only recognizes two genders, the biological male and the biological female. Likewise, the Bible makes it very clear that marriage can only be between a biological male and a biological female. So if the scriptures dictate that one prerequisite for the clerical state is to be the husband, the biological male of one wife, a biological female. Does that all make sense, everybody? I think so. It's pretty plain to see the scriptures insist on a biological males for the clergy. That and the fact that scripture refers to such candidates as men and always uses the male pronouns. Now let's get to St. Paul, our good buddy. St. Paul isn't a bit shy about this. He insists on no uncertain terms that women cannot hold any positions of authority in the church, ever. He makes no exceptions about this. Here it is. Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 to 15. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over man. She is to keep silent, 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet women will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. It didn't go over very well with our modern ears, does it? But today's politically correct standards of speech, this sounds very sexist, right? However, we have to understand that the ancients knew nothing of political correctness and were quite blunt. <laughs> you can tell me that. You're not kidding. <coughs> In their speech, by their today's standards. This text must be properly interpreted in context. The context of the passage is prayer, specifically public prayer in a church setting. Paul is talking about who leads prayer, and he references men here as the clergy. The women, he tells us, to keep silent. That doesn't mean they can't talk. What he's saying is they can't lead in prayer, meaning specifically they can't officiate the liturgy. Of course women can speak in church in other ways, in non-authoritative ways, such as they can sing in the choir, make announcements, even read from the passages of Scripture. But women cannot officiate the liturgy. St. Paul makes this clear by saying he does not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. That's the key word here, authority. Officiating the liturgy is a sign of authority. That's why St. Paul forbids it. Am I giving you a long enough answer? What do you think, folks? His explanation deserves some context as well. Otherwise, our politically correct society will not tolerate it. Now, I can go on with this answer because there's several more things I can say about this. The bottom line is, St. John Paul II, in 1994, he came out with an apostolic letter, I remember it well, on this topic. And he wrote, Therefore, in order that all doubt may be removed regarding the matter of this great importance, a matter which pertains to the Church's divine constitution itself, in virtue of my ministry of confirming the brethren, that's what the Pope's job is to do, Luke 22, 32, I declare, the Pope said, that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women and that this judgment is to be definitely held by all the church faithful. Now, the phrase, the church has no authority whatsoever, the church cannot have any authority that Christ has not given it to her. Remember that principle in the Bible, too. That's why we call this the perennial teachings of the church. When it comes to ordaining clergy, Christ is our example. We cannot do more than he did. Jesus Christ only ordained men to the clerical state. He did not ordain women, children, or anyone else. Only men. Now, I could go on and on with this topic, but I think I've covered it enough. It takes me seven minutes to cover that. But I tell you this because these questions come up I bet if I asked you, did anybody ever ask you why the Catholic Church doesn't ordain women? Well, now you can tell them. <laughs> All right. Let's get to some of the biblical worldview of creation. I'll call lead it off as they, this is right from Dr. Scott Hahn. The earth was a formless empty. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on 
to describe a problem. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now there are two words in Hebrew, and I said I didn't know this, but you got to know your Hebrew and your Greek. The Hebrew that denote the kind of problem, the earth was formless and void of empty. In other words, God had to do two things. He had to create a structure, and he had to fill it with inhabitants, right? It was unformed and unfilled. So basically, there was no inhabitants in the beginning. So then in the sixth day of creation, taking this right from the Bible, he first creates by his own word day and night. What does he create the second day? He creates the sky and the sea. On the third day, he creates land. What he just did in those three days was a response to the first problem. If the heavens and the earth are formless and empty, what he just created in those three days was form. You get it? He created form to creation. He created day and night. That's time. He created the sky and the sea. That's space. And then he created land so that the inhabitants can dwell and live. What does he do the second set of three days? You can see a correspondence. This is important to get this straight. The fourth day corresponds to the first, and the fifth day to the second, and the sixth to the third. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars to rule over the day and the night on the fourth day. On the fifth day, he creates those beings that will rule over the sky and the sea. Yeah, the birds and the fish. <laughs> Then on the sixth day, he created those that will inhabit the land, and he created on the third day. In other words, the Hebrews understood this as a kind of home-building project. Isn't that a great way of saying it? Thank you, Dr. Scott Hahn. God creates the structure in three days. Then he fills the structure with living beings on the second three days. And on the seventh day, yeah, you know what he did. He convenes himself to the creation, so it becomes for him a kind of temple, palace, his own home. The creator enters into a family relation and becomes, as it were, a father to his creatures. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the doctrine of creation. This is very important. If you don't get a good grasp of the book of Genesis, all the other books make no sense. That's what I learned from Dr. Hahn, and that's why I want to pass this on to you, our listener. Bible with the Barbers, my wife will be back with me tomorrow. Uh, no, next Friday, I should say. This is once a week show. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the doctrine of creation. That is so important, how God created creation and how it applies to us today. So stay with us, family. This is a good Bible study on the first book of the Bible book of Genesis. Get your Bible out, read the book of Genesis, it all makes sense creation. Stay with us family, we'll be right back after a quick break.
Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back. Bible with the Barbers. Mary will be back next Friday. She's under the weather. We're talking about creation. We're talking about using Dr. Scott Hahn's salvation history material. That's what I've been using. And now there are other basic insights that we can gain from creation. I think it would be worthwhile to consider some. For instance, the doctrine of creation, we're going to look at three teachings of the church that come from Genesis chapter 1. This is fundamental, everybody, fundamental with the Bible. Having a biblical worldview, Genesis chapter 1, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of marriage, just briefly. First of all, we believe in creation. Does that mean we can't believe in evolution? No, it doesn't. Check this out. All the popes have repeated the idea that we can believe in an evolution. We don't have to. You're free to reject the theory, as many scientists are these days, but evolution and creation are not incompatible theories once they are both properly understood. This is the key, properly understood. Why? Because creation tells us where matter came from, and evolution tells us how it developed to become what it is today. In a certain sense, you can say the theory of evolution, <coughs> properly understood, with its limits, presupposes it assumes a doctrine of creation. Because evolution assumes matter, right? That has been evolving and developing <coughs> down through the ages. But it doesn't answer the question never even raises the question. <laughs> it's a good one. Where did the matter come from? <laughs> Some Big Bang theorists might say, well, it was from the primordial blob of helium, helium that exploded. As it exploded, it went out and collected extra electrons, and we had a periodic chart, and all the elements of the universe came through tens of billions of years, or whatever, but it never answers the question, where did the primal mass of helium come from? See, the, the ultimate God issue. Then you have the oscillating universe theorists who say, well, that was an extinct universe from another Big Bang that collapsed. Well, that's preposing the question. Where did it all come from? Matter doesn't have to exist, but it does exist. So why does it exist? <laughs> I love this. It assumes that there must be a doctrine or belief or teaching of creation. So the two are not theoretically incompatible but in a sense, potentially complementary. Once you understand the limits. Okay, here they are. Evolution teaches the development of matter, whereas creation talks about 
the origin of matter. You see that distinction? I hope we get that clear because that could really solve a lot of problems that people have these days. <coughs> I believe we also find not only compatibility with these two ideas, ideals, but we can see that God is absolutely sovereign in creation and that when he creates, he does not create something in opposition to himself. He creates something which is entirely under his control and lordship. God is sovereign over all creation. That's a key point. God is sovereign over all creation. Now, in addition, we discover that as he creates, he pronounces his creation very good. He says, behold, it is good. Behold, it is good. And at the end of it, he says, it is very good. Now, some people believe that matter is evil and spirit is good. It's a heresy, but yes, yeah, some people think that. My soul is good, but my body is a kind of a necessary evil that I need to get through this world. But as soon as I can discard it, I will thank you. No way. That won't fit the Genesis chapter 1. That won't fit with all of Christianity and the Catholic Church teachings. Matter as well as spirit, body as well as soul, are positive goods that are created for God, are by God and for God. They're ultimately instruments that God uses in redeeming us. This is very important to understand. St. John Paul II talks about the theology of the body coming from Genesis. See, if our body causes us to sin, God then reverses that by using our body, our flesh. Christ's flesh to redeem us and to restore us to a relationship with him. The goodness of matter, in a sense, is the cornerstone of all of our sacraments. Did you hear that? Wow. I'll repeat that. The goodness of matter, in a sense, is the cornerstone of all of our sacraments. It's precisely because our Redeemer is also our Creator. Isn't that great? <laughs> and He can take what He created and use it to restore us and glorify us for everlasting life. We need to see the world around us and the structure of this world as things which are good. Attitude of gratitude, welcome just about everywhere. Now, Vatican II called lay people to go and sanctify the temporal order. I've been saying that for 40 years. Sanctify the temporal order. Be a good attorney. Be a good accountant. Whatever. You, got your, you sanctify the temporal order by doing your duties well. The political sphere is not just evil. The economy is not evil. There might be evil things that are being done, but these structures, these spheres of government are good, positive goods. So the doctrine of creation teaches us that God is the Lord of all creation and that creation he made is good. Even the matter, 
you know, the physical stuff of our body and our flesh. I'll tell you, um, this is good news for us all. Now let's get into the doctrine of man created in God's image and likeness. This is very, very important. Now, that gets us into the doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be a man, male and female? Our world needs to hear this, wouldn't you say so, folks? First of all, we see in Genesis 1.26 and 1.27 that it means that we are created in the image of God. So important. What does this doctrine of being created in the image of God mean? Some people say that the image of God denotes the rationality that humans possess over and against animals. That's true as far as it goes. But in the Hebrew narrative of Genesis, the image of God is a phrase that suggests even more. For instance, we read in chapter 5, Genesis, we read in the verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. That's the very next time image and likeness is used as a phrase. And what does it there mean? To father a son so that when God the creator creates man in his image and likeness, what does that suggest? It suggests that our creator is in the act of making us, fathering us. He is creating us to enter into a father-son relationship so that we are the children of God. Wow, we're the children of God, yes. We are given the grace of God from the moment of our historical existence. Now, this is a key point that theologians often debate about but I think it can be made very simple. And that is this. By nature, we would only be create creatures and servants of God. That is, if all we had was human nature to go with. We'd be God's servants, God's slaves, God's possessions, his property. But from the moment of our historical existence, when he first created us, he gave us his grace, right? So that God the creator became Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the family of God who calls us into his own home, into his own family. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Our own family. Some people say, well... There are two creation accounts in Genesis. That's true. We have one in chapter 1, and we've got another one in chapter 2. I'd say bingo! Exactly! Now, some people will say, well, therefore you got contradictions. No, we've got complementarity. In Genesis 1, we see God, Emelim, the creator, brings the cosmos into the existence of the end of which he creates his own image and likeness. The cosmos is being transformed into a home. These creatures 
are being transformed into children. So, the obvious leads right into Genesis 2. And this alternative understanding of creation, which is purely covenantal in the sense that God fashions man into a married couple. And then what does he say? You heard this all your life. Be fruitful and multiply. And they behold each other and they are enraptured and thrilled and they are in love and so on. This proves again the Bible does not contradict itself. When you approach these problems, you end up seeing great complementary and insight. But you also see that our Creator becomes our Father and that these creatures are called to become His children and to live out that life in the covenant as a covenant family members of God with man. Wow, you see how important Genesis 1 creation is? When we come back, we're going to talk a bit, a little bit about the Hebrews and how an American understanding is a little different. You're listening to the Bible with the Barbers. We're going through salvation history, starting with the book of Genesis on creation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Stay with us, family. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to the Bible with the Barbers. If you just tuned in, we've been covering the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. We talked about the two creation stories and how they complement each other. I'll continue on this. Think about this. It's very hard for Americans to understand this manner of thinking but I think it's very, very important. Where is it important? Well, in many, many areas of life. Check this out. For one thing, we should see that when God creates humanity in his own image and likeness, that imparts a certain sanctity to the human life. Yeah, human life does not become dignified or valuable according to its economic output. No productivity or according to political preference or even party membership. Human life has a sacred dignity in and of itself. This is a biblical worldview here, folks. Why? It's because the image of God. Humans are children of God. That's what they were created to be. And even after the fall, that's still what we are called to be. And that's what Christ graces us to become more and more, to grow up as God's sons and daughters. So, all human life has dignity. Yes, pre-born human beings, life in utero, in the image of God. If Our Lady was immaculately conceived, that tells us that at conception, You've got to have a person who can be in relationship with God. If when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, when she went to visit Elizabeth and John the Baptist, who was in Elizabeth's womb, leapt for joy, we discover that not only do we have human life, but we've got 
human experience in some way that we cannot understand scientifically. Human life has an awesome, immeasurable value, and our society has to learn to go beyond economic productivity in measuring the value of human life. Not just in the mother's womb, no, but aged as well. The, I call it the long-born and the short-born, all of it. The infirm, who might be deficient intellectually, they're human beings and they're made in the image of God. Therefore, their life possesses an intrinsic, intrinsic divine dignity. Okay? That's very important. We also need to see that each human person has dignity that they may have sinned in some heinous way. They might have committed some awful crime, but they are human persons, and so they must be respected as such. They are redeemable no matter what they have done. Mr. Engineer, our Je Eric Genesis is trying to call in to talk about some of his little concerts. I'd be happy to promote that. So if you can put them on the air, let me know. We also see the human labor has a certain value because what does God do? Does he say, look, if you sin, I'm going to send you to work. No, work is not the curse, the frustration. All right, I'm going to break from this salvation history teaching to bring on my good friend, Eric Janice. Eric, welcome to the Bible with the Barbers, brother. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Terry. <laughs> Great to be with you, as always. Oh, and Eric, just for our listeners who don't know who you are, you and I have been going back for 20-some years. You would speak at our at our family conferences, play all the beautiful music, and uh, I love anything you're doing when it comes to uh, lifting people up in their spirits with music. Can you share a little bit uh, about what you're doing now? Oh, that's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, Terry, for the last, I guess, 30 years, mm -hmm. I've been going and taking, I, I'm a composer, and so I write music, and mm -hmm. I write music for, you know, a world-class violinist, cellist, and singer. <laughs> great. And I I go into these very dark places. I play, I played nine concerts shy of a thousand prison concerts. Oh, my God. So I spend a lot of time in prison <laughs> over the last 30 years. Good for you. <laughs> And so I play in a lot of rehab centers right now with COVID. They're not letting people in. Yeah. Um, and even in the youth prison. So I'm playing in a lot of rehab centers. Mm -hmm. And Terry, it is remarkable, the 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 reaction. So, you know, inmates or, or people who struggle with addictions hear these great violinists and cellists, and they're very, very moved, and they write very strong letters. So I, I make myself very available to them. I get a lot of phone mm -hmm. calls on the weekends from inmates. Yes. I get a lot of letters. I get a lot of letters from, you know, people suffering from addiction. So right. I spent a great deal of my life going into these areas. So the, the, the job is twofold. One is to go and play for those who are broken with world-class soloists. Beautiful. And, and, and the second goal is to, to really use that to teach the world beauty matters. Yes. So we live in a world where there's a lot of discouragement, a lot of despair, mm -hmm. and people are feeling hopeless. And I just think, you know, beauty plays a huge role yeah. in our inspiration and uplifting us. And that's, the, that's really the language of God. And I just sort of look at it and I think we're all 
we all hunger and thirst for beauty, regardless of background, regardless of pain, regardless of history. We all strive and are inspired by beauty. So we should be really make a conscious effort to fill our lives with beauty, Terry. And that's sort of what it's about. So the concerts are entertaining, they're joyful, they're fun, but they are inspirational. They are. And they're, and, uh, and they're meant to really uplift the, the, the audience. Now, people are in Southern California. You're coming in to Southern California. Can you give them a little taste of where you're going to be and how they can participate? Yes, I'm going to be performing. The, the fun thing is I'm going to be playing in a lot of rehab centers mm-hmm. in the area. So I think what people should do is if people are interested in seeing a show, what they could do is connect with me. Good. And I will, I will privately sort of invite them into these areas. Like mm-hmm. I'm playing in a lot of rehab centers throughout. Like, for example, on the, um, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm starting off actually in, Phoenix, Arizona, on the first couple of days, but on the fifth, on the sixteenth, rather. Yes. Uh, uh, sorry, on the seventeenth, I'll be at a, a rehab center in Santa Monica. On the eight, on the nineteenth, I'm at a rehab center in Las Vegas. On the twentieth, I'm playing for gang members at Homeboy, and then in the evening, I'm playing at a rehab center in San Bernardino. Wow. And on the twenty-first, at a rehab center in in Pasadena. And on the 23rd in San Diego and the 24th in Anaheim and the 25th back in Santa Monica. <laughs> so all over the place. Yeah, I guess. So how do they contact you, Eric? Yep. So the best way would be just ericgenis at gmail.com. And my last name is spelled genius with the U and the I switched. Or they can just call my cell. I'm very accessible. They can just sort of Google me and, and they can just call my phone, my office and cell phone number, sure. and, they, and they're most welcome to come. And it's really a great corporate work of mercy to come and to share the concert with people that are broken. Eric, children, let me jump in and just say, I've heard testimonies of some of these men in prison who have heard music, beautiful music, and that it touched their souls. Can you share a testimony of just one or two people that you've touched in prison where they've come up to you to tell you such you know, profound things? You know, I was playing in a, in, a, in a prison in Texas, and this one man who had like three lifetimes, he stood up in the middle of the show and he said, my reason for die, for living died 20 years ago. He said, I feel like I've been buried alive, and today I can breathe again. I awesome. feel like I am alive for the first time. And, and so I'm very moved by that. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I get that sort of thing all the time. I was performing in, in um, San Diego. Mm-hmm. in uh, Donovan prison and in the middle of the show this one guy stood up and he said the day I was sentenced to double murder he said I got 60 years I'll never be free again he said in order to survive that you have to internally die he said I am alive today wow guys come up all the time they shake my hand mm-hmm. thank you for the 90 minutes of freedom Terry you have to remember I bring in world-class soloists this isn't That's a right. cute little concert right. these are people who can play anywhere in the world right we come and we share it with them and it's, it's exciting it's really and it's fun and and it's thrilling but it does uplift their humanity yes and the lesson behind all that is that if they're moving these in these places that are so dark and these guys are hungering for it and they don't even know they're hungering for it. one of the best compliments i ever received was i played you know, at a very high-end event, at a beautiful concert hall, this woman came up and said, thank you for giving me something I did not know I needed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I just think we're all hungering for it, Terry. Sure. And it all and, uh, ended up with, that's why I've thrown my life at this. You know? Awesome. Well, Eric, you know, I've been a big supporter of your work for 
decades, yeah. and I want to encourage people to continue to listen to your music because it does uplift the soul. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to call into our show. And uh, I want to say I also ask all of our listeners to pray for you that your health will hold up for doing the work you're doing because traveling like that, it's not easy. And uh, may no. God richly bless yeah. you and your family. All right? That's so kind of you, Terry. Great to talk to you. Thanks. I love you and your family, Thanks, and I'll brother. talk to you soon. God love you. That was Eric Jenis, who's doing all these concerts all over the country for the last 30 years, and a beautiful classical music. He is an amazing young man. He's not as young as he used to be, but he's still uh, young for me. So I appreciate him calling in and doing that. When we come back, we're going to continue on our salvation history lesson with a biblical worldview of creation. And uh, we'll do more of that. I just want to remind you also that the Spiritual Warfare Conference, it's sold out, but you can still go by watching it online. Uh, go to vmpr.org or call us at 877-526-2151. And what will happen is you'll watch it on the following Monday, and then you'll have all those recordings at your access once you register for the conference. You can share it with your friends. Uh, Father Chad Ripperker and many others are coming. Jesse Romero will be there. I'm going to be there. It's going to be a packed house, but I think the content is going to be outstanding for all of our listeners to help with that spiritual warfare from a biblical perspective. Again, uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about salvation history from Genesis. I want to thank all those folks who have been supporting us here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. What do we do? We give you the gospel, a biblical worldview of life. That's what the world needs today. Wouldn't you agree? Stay with us, family. We're going to come right back with our view on creation here on the Bible with the Bible. Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome back to the Bible with the Barbers. Boy, this went back fast. I want to encourage people to get that book, Awake Your Love by Cardinal Sarah on marriage. I won't be able to get to some of the exercises with him, but I'm talking about the book of Genesis with Dr. Scott Hahn's book called Salvation History. Uh, This is the doctrine of marriage, be fruitful and multiply. I talked about that earlier. This leads me to a point I'd like to make with great force. It is that Christian teaching rooted in Genesis 1 that we have a doctrine of marriage that is second to none. How many (coughs) of the world's religions require their adherents to practice strict monogamy? Think of it, folks. Buddhism, no. Hinduism, no. Confucianism, no. Jansen, no. Islam, no. Judaism, no. How many of the world's religions require their practitioners to maintain strict monogamy, relations, and marriage? Put your seatbelt on. One in all of human history. Only one Christianity, not Judaism. Abram had two wives. Jacob had two. Israel had two. Christianity represents a kind of beautiful world revolution in the dignity of women and in the sacred dignity of marriage being restored to its original purpose. This is so critical, folks. 
God said, let us make man in our image and likeness in Genesis 1. And how does he do it? Let us make man in our image and likeness and let them rule over the fish and the sea. And it goes on, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, that's right, be fruitful and multiply. Now, when he created man, male and female, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, what does that suggest? That he says, well, go ahead and enter into this, you know, relationship and then let's just see those offspring. No, if you like each other and you want children, we can formalize the arrangement somehow, marriage or whatever convention you'd like. No, he is not suggesting having an affair and if things work out, we can finalize it. This is the, so important. The statement assumes marital covenant. Marriage is not man-made. Marriage is divinely instituted the very moment man, male, female is created. How do you like that? Our culture could be turned upside down if we could see strict monogamy. Yep. It's rooted in the nature of man as male and female at the moment of our creation. And it's something that Christ infallibly and explicitly republished and restored. That's why Christianity has had a hard time wherever women in marriage and children have been repudiated and looked down on. Yep. <clears throat> this is where Jesus went in Matthew chapter 19 with the Pharisees, probed the question about divorce. He went right back to Genesis. Did you notice? Genesis 2, 1 and 2. There he set straight and made clear the doctrine of marital indissolubility. What God has joined, let no man put us under. He's not just saying, shame on you for breaking up the marriage. He's saying God is the one who creates marriage. Who do you think you are, mere humans, to break it up? We can say it's broken up. We can even feel we can even feel the emotional and psychological, and that's even broken up. We can even have the state declare it's broken up legally. But if it's a sacramental marriage, it's indissoluble. Now, <clears throat> technically, I just committed a little boo-boo. If you want to study the law of the church really closely, you'll discover something very fascinating. If two people get married before 10,000 people at a great mass, they celebrate matrimony, and then that night they decide to pray all night and then go to sleep, and the next night read the Book of Tobit, by the way. It was done that way. If they decide after three or four days that God has called them to live a Josephite marriage or to live in a celibate fashion, and this has actually happened in the church history where they have been called to religious life after that of something along these lines, what happens? A marriage is actually validated with the contract that's celebrated in the church, but it is only rendered permanent and indissoluble 
when the marital act is done. When the act of marriage is performed, that is what makes a marriage legal and is strictly sense indissoluble. So, does the Catholic Church look down on sex? No way! It's sexual act of the covenant of marriage that makes marriage all that it is, was, and created to be permanent, lifelong, and indissoluble. I say fruitful and multiply. We might say, be fruitful and add one and two, you know. No, God said, be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't mean thoroughly have as many children as you can. Well, God will take care of those 25 kids, even though I've got no job. No, of course, the church never taught it either. We trust God's providence for the life that he created through and with us. Now, we are, in a sense, co-creators with God in the act of marriage. That's what the Bible says. This covenant is life-giving in its power. There is something here that our culture needs to hear. Again, that marital love in the covenant of marriage is life-giving not just accidentally or incidentally, but intrinsically. That is the divine intention for the two to become one. So there's a unitive purpose in marriage. Procreative and unitive, that's right. The two shall become one, that the imitate union should be the source of all kinds of companionships, friendships, communion, and so on. But the two become one, and then ultimately what? Three and four or five. <laughs> you have to give them names. Yeah. God is a family. An infinite family of three persons. When God creates the human family in his own image and likeness, how do finite beings image an infinite family? By becoming three or four or five, a million. Ten million, twenty million, thirty million, or whatever. We are called to be fruitful and multiply in the image of God, not just biologically, but psychologically and socially in the love and song. Now, Genesis 1 is the blueprint for creation. This is something that the church is getting herself into lots of trouble for teaching these days because we have pedophilia, a fear of children, a disorder, fear of having children. Yeah, they have dogs and cats, but no children. I understand why. I have three, and if we waited until we were ready and mature enough to have them, we'd be at least 80 or 90 before we had one. But God promises to give us the grace that we need, and this is the doctrine of creation. That our bodies are good, that sexual instincts can be harnessed for the glorious ends, and the doctrine of marriage teaches that we're created to be an indissoluble covenant and that the indissoluble covenant is made by God to be fruitful and that fruitfulness is not meant to be thwarted. Contraception is unnatural. And Scott mentioned when he was a Protestant, he still thought that you know natural law and scripture was really a clear way to him. But he said, I would study, and my wife as well, that contraception was not in keeping uh, with God's design for life-giving power of marital love in his covenant. And check this out, folks. All Protestant theologians for 400 years agree with the Catholic Church. It wasn't until the last 50 years that the few began to change 
and many now become a flood. Many of the theologians who first began to allow contraception are now endorsing abortion, homosexual marriage, and all kinds of things that Christians have never thought of falling. Once you fall with that, everything else falls. So we got a mission to dying and despairing world to give them the life-giving power of marital love, to lift their vision higher and to show them what's really in itself. We see in Genesis 1 the blueprint for all creation because Adam and Eve were to obey completely and perfectly. That would have happened. That would have imaged God. They would have been faithful sons and daughters. They would have been living spouses to each other. They would have created children who were in turn faithful and who would have imaged the Trinity. Unfortunately, folks, pride, selfishness, you hear those? Fear, and these things came in. We haven't even gotten to Genesis 3. We're out of time, though, folks. <laughs> so let's, let's just suggest a conclusion that we all live our lives focused upon the gift of the family and see it as a covenant terms of God and designed it. Then shift our focus a little bit to see that the church is the family of God as well. In a sense, an eternal, uh, everlasting, permanent family. That, this parish, our family, all of us, where it's a supernatural plane of which we do as natural fathers in the, in the natural sphere. Now we have to study theology and we approach sacred scripture. We are doing something that is not just for specialists and scholars. I'm saying this, by the way, a conclusion, folks. I want to say that in the way of encouragement. Theology is not specialized science for esoteric few. No. Theology comes from the compound means knowing God. That's what theology is. Remember, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict VI, once said that theology is a spiritual science. The normative theologians are the author of Holy Scripture. We have the Bible in a very means by which we can enter into a much intimate relationship with our Father. And we are going to see throughout this week, continue with this series, the family of God is our master idea of the whole Catholic religion. It's going to be the key to understanding why we look to Mary as being our mother, our Pope as our Holy Father, parish priest as the sacramental father, and the saints as being our older brothers and sisters, and the Eucharist as being the family table. All this is part of the program that God established when he made a covenant and created us in his own image and likeness. I got to say thank you very much. I really mean that. This was a fun topic for me to talk about on Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. My wife will be back next Friday, same time, same station. I hope you all have a great weekend. And this will be a podcast so you can share it with your friends and family and give them the basics on the Bible and have that world biblical view of Genesis 1 and chapter 2. May God richly bless you. And here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, we're just happy to be here to share the good news, the biblical worldview here at the Bible with the Barbers. God love you and your family.